Hey everybody, and welcome to our newest project for first responder wellness, No One Fights Alone, an in-depth conversation about mental health and addiction in the first responder space. We're joined by your hosts, Austin Pedersen and Josh Adams. All right, it's another episode. Uh, it's been a minute since we've done one. It's probably been like last. Well, last one we did was was Brent, which you which you met last night. Yes. Yeah, and that was that was a good episode. I do I did enjoy it with him. I was sick as shit that day, mm-hmm. so my ears were like plugged up. I couldn't even hear half he said. I felt a little bad about it. But um, welcome back to another episode of of No One Fights Alone. Um, I think we have someone who can bring a different perspective today on uh, a lot of different things in the first responder community. And uh, that is Trevor Wilkins, uh, also known as the Angry Viking Therapist. Um, We want to welcome you on the channel, man. Thanks for having me. Yep. Yep. I did meet him last night and uh, yeah, hopefully can bring a little perspective. Yeah. Yeah. He's a, he's a cool dude. And um, we're also with our, our infamous Chief Adams. Except apparently I don't talk enough, so... Yeah, yeah. We gave him the feedback that he needs to talk more. He's the favorite. You know what I mean? Well, with good reason. I mean, it's either me or you. That's a yeah. pretty easy win. Yeah, 50-50 chance there. Absolutely. Absolutely. But no, Trevor, we wanted to give you a minute, kind of introduce yourself. Like, tell us a little bit about what you're... I mean, Josh and I know what you're about. We got to spend... You know, he got to spend last night. I got to spend the majority of today getting to know you. Yeah. Um, and it's it's been a really awesome experience. You flew across the country to, to come out and uh, visit with us. Um, so just tell us a little bit about yourself, man. Sure. Yeah. So uh, like you said, Dr. Trevor Wilkins, I'm known as uh, through the therapy world as the angry Viking therapist. I get into kind of how I came across that nickname after a couple of years, but really as it pertains to, uh, you know, the today's subjects and the podcast and what we've been talking about. So I spent uh, four years as an EMT, uh, from about 18 to 22, and then got into law enforcement. Uh, spent a total of 15 years uniform law enforcement, so about 18 years altogether in uniform public safety. And that was not the dream when I was a kid. It just kind of came to fruition at 18 and 21. They sounded like cool jobs and wanted to do it. And, uh, you know, my goal uh, in in public safety was to stay with the, the state police, which I was in Kentucky, um, and uh, worked a couple different agencies, but but the longest there. And, you know, by 40, I wanted to make captain and have myself a post area and ride off in a sunset and really enjoyed being the police. And as I'm sure we'll talk about, it didn't end up that way. So um, the way I like to tell is about year seven, uh, I'd gone to an accident, you know, just another fatal accident. We've all been to them. Most people listening have been to them. I worked for the States. I've been to thousands of them. You know, it's just something that we dealt with. And when I got there, what I'd found out was this lady had sideswiped a uh, dump truck, uh, which caused her to go through the guardrail, which I didn't know was possible. She went down about 100 yards, about a 45-degree embankment, and it hit a tree at the bottom head-on. Well, two things happened when she hit the tree. Uh, one was the car burst into flames, and the second was she was immediately trapped inside of it. So you're pretty pretty tough situation for anybody, probably a top 10 scene that the cops and fire and EMS have had to go to, but uh, just another wreck. So I go down there, can't get her out, and unfortunately, you know, I, I hear her succumb to her injuries. Uh, difficult for anybody, but uh, the reason I tell that is not so much for shock value because people listening have probably been through many things like that, as I had before and since, as I continue to work. 
What I like to highlight about that is I finished the investigation, went home, took my uniform off. Next morning, put my uniform on, went back to work. And although I don't know that that was the moment that everything changed for me, it was definitely the catalyst for major change over the next five years. What I saw myself going from was, as I look back, is, you know, uh, recruiting poster level officer. You know, I loved everything about the job. I loved being in uniform. Uh, I spoke highly of the agency and recruiting people. I had numerous awards for bravery in the line of duty, uh, awards for most felony arrests in an area. Really wanted to be a go-to uh, officer, you know, somebody that the Sarge could call and business got handled. Really enjoyed it. I went from that guy over a series of about four or five years from that guy to the absolute worst employee you could have. Uh, I was written up all the time, constantly in trouble, constantly complained on, very angry. Um, got to the point where my anger was taking over everything, um, even regular contacts. The anger was taking over. I was losing my wife. My kids were scared of me, my young kids, uh, because the anger outburst. I was uh, eventually going to lose my career, which I'll get to, but uh, I didn't enjoy work anymore. I was angry all the time. Like I said, it's, uh, I was written up all the time, and I was the guy that went from that employee to the guy that ended up in the sergeant's office, the lieutenant's office, the captain's office, the major's office, um, where I eventually uh, went to flip over the desk of the eastern half major of the state. Uh, if you want to get fired, it's a pretty good way to do it. Yeah. So uh, definitely had some anger issues going into that. Um, that didn't necessarily get me fired, but that was kind of a crowning moment of a problem. And a few days later, I find myself kind of sitting in my cruiser in the middle of the road, really for no reason, just uh, a disaster, uh, just a mental mental disaster, Ever, losing everything but the job. Felt like I was going to sleep in my car soon. Everything was kind of fading away from me. So I called uh, the psychologist worked for the state, and he's a great guy. I still know him, and uh, he worked for the state police. And I told him what's going on. I said, man, I, you know, like, I'm the guy that never reaches out for help. I'm that guy. I'm that type A, love being in uniform, campaign hat wearing, tough guy. And I'm, I'm help. I need help. I'm a mess. And uh, not necessarily because of him, but because of the kind of position that he has. You know, he said, man, I, I do more crisis stuff. I really don't do therapy. Let me give you the name of a couple of people that, that could probably help. So even though I took the, those, that information and took that as a little bit of help, that was strike one. You know, I'd, I'd reached out yeah. and that was strike one. And uh, so I went to the first lady that he, that he recommended. And when I told her the story of that car fire, she cried. The so, cried. so you're one of the people that at, the therapist actually cried because I yes, hear I hear stories I hear stories about that all the time. Yeah, and and everyone saying like you know these therapists cannot the, the cultural competency piece just is not sure. there. Yep. But there's been very few people that I've actually met where yeah they legit cried. Absolutely did, and, and I yeah. became the caretaker. And you know it, it, it's okay uh, to show empathy with your clients, mm -hmm. but to become the one crying in the room by yourself yeah, is that's not, not helpful. That's yeah. not okay. Like so much of that is it's. You know your your typical EAP. You're you're dealing with somebody that's just you know post grad. Just they're barely walking yeah. into their career. Oh yeah. So not only is there no cultural competency with with first responders and so forth, but you're you're one of the first patients they've ever dealt with in real absolutely. You know, and, and yeah, you're. I, I I experienced the same thing. She twenty four year old pregnant lady. Yeah. You know, yeah. And she starts crying. I'm like, oh shit. I've ruined her yeah. now. Yeah. yeah. I felt yeah. guilty because I asked for help the first time. Yeah. yeah. It took years for me to 
to, to, to move beyond that, to feel like I could talk to somebody again. Yep. So that, that was strike two right there. So I went to the third person or the second person he recommended, which had been the third therapist. And that therapist literally told me that my PTSD was so bad and my anger was so bad. He didn't know what to do with me or where to send me. So they're, they're strike three. So, so now I'm in my head losing everything. I've had this third strike and I've been told I'm so screwed up that they don't know how to fix me. Uh, I know now because of what I do, that's not true. That maybe he should have gone about that a different way. I don't know why he said that, but uh, that was strike three. So I was done with that. Uh, And eventually uh, got to January of one year and, and again, gone from this guy that uh, was leading parts of the state and certainly my part of the state on activity, numerous awards, uh, going from that to now being written up all the time and being written up for low activity all the time as well. I'm, I'm just sitting, you know, and uh, not enjoying the job anymore. So I have a sergeant that calls and says, hey, we're going to write you up again for the third time, third month in a row for low activity. And I finally said, man, I got some problems. Like this is, it's not good. You know, I got some problems. I think they probably knew that I was changing. There was some problems, but not the extent I hit it very well. It's a little easier to do at a large agency. So he said, well, man, why don't you take some days off? And I'd never taken a day off before ever. No, six 18 days. years of public yeah. safety, 15 years of law enforcement. I don't take days off. So he said, why don't you take some days off? Heck take two or three, man. We'll be okay. And he said, but remember if it's more than three, you gotta have a doctor's note to come back. So, uh, took a lot more than three because, uh, over a course of the next seven months where I burned every moment of sick time that I had saved, which was seven months, uh, I went to two doctors, two psychiatrists, two psychologists, not a one of them would sign for me to go back. Nobody so, was putting their name on that. So it wasn't like a fit for duty. They just wouldn't even, it was nothing like that. Just not, Hey, yeah. we're not bringing you back. Yeah. We're not, we're not signing for you to go back to the road. I'm not putting my doctor name on this piece Nothing of paper. Nothing restorative, just fail, fail, yeah. fail, yeah. fail. So I get to seven months, and I don't have a job anymore. It's not a sick time. So that, that, that is most of the tough part of the story. And I know with introductions on podcasts, a lot of times, you know, that, that, was, that was a little backwards, and then we kind of talk about, you know, what the guest does and how you got there. And, but, but, after talking to you guys over the last 24 hours, I, I know this conversation is going to trauma oh, know, yeah. and, and, and public safety. So, so we'll get that out of the way. So early. So, um, you know, it, I call those the dark years. Uh, I was losing everything. You had to watch my own cruiser drive out of my driveway, you know, everything I'd worked for. So it's pretty dark, but I was still really angry. So I was still kind of, you know, F you kind of mentality uh, about it all. They were still wrong, in my opinion. I was still right. So, you know, again, losing family, kids scared of me, losing everything. So now I'm really in a mess. Now, now I have no income as well. So the good part was I'm either too bullheaded or too strong, or I guess it depends on who you ask, too stubborn, and decided I'm going to go to school and figure out what the heck is wrong with me. Well, I went to college uh, after high school on an academic scholarship at Texas Tech University. In my freshman year, I figured out I liked girls and beer more than I liked uh, class at 8 a.m. So yeah, I had that same, work out. same yeah, thing happen It worked out for yeah, me so well. Yeah. So here I am, you know, I say that to say that here I am with no degree, no real job skills, 
you know, I'm sure I can find, teach something or I don't know. Security work maybe. Yeah. Like yeah. Definitely yeah. not what I wanted to be doing. Yeah. And, uh, not being the tip of the spear in my opinion anymore. So I went back to school, uh, bachelor's, master's and PhD in counseling. So what, what age are you at this point? Sorry. Just, um, late thirties. Okay. Mid to late thirties. Um, I started the bachelor's actually during my last few years of law enforcement. That was for criminal justice. Just something I always wanted to finish. Yeah. You know, I, I hate it hanging over my head. Yeah. So I'd finished the bachelor's about the time that I'd get out of law enforcement. So that helped with a couple of those years. Yeah. And really had no interest in going back to school, but I'm sitting on the, uh, sitting on the website of where I got my bachelor's from trying to figure out what to do with my life. And they had a degree for professional counseling. And I thought, well, at a minimum, maybe I'll figure out what the heck's wrong with me. And, uh, finished that, uh, decided I was never going to go to school again. Sitting one night late, you know, looking at colleges for a PhD and now I'm a PhD. So, uh, in counseling. So that all kind of led to a private practice that I have, uh, in Kentucky in Lexington, kind of the center of the state where I am my staff. I'm very fortunate to have a staff now. It's grown really well. Uh, we specialize in public safety, military, high risk careers, high stress careers, uh, not just as individuals. That's just what we tend to attract, of course. And, um, but we also specialize in complex trauma. We're all EMDR specialists, uh, which, which is a, uh, Treatment modality, of course, for, for PTSD that I highly recommend for people and highly believe in. And uh, adults with childhood trauma is our other specialty. So we, we, we were kind of trauma people at my yeah. office. That led to an online program uh, where I can help people outside of Kentucky. And it's helped to, to meetings like this, conversations like this that we've had over the last 24 hours. And uh, I get to travel a lot and speak uh, to a couple different places throughout the year or quite a few places throughout the year uh, about my experiences and so it, it started out tough I had some dark years for sure but it, it as I tell people kind of turned into a cool job in the end I get to do this now and I would have laughed in your face if a you'd have told me I'd gone to a therapist much less be one 15 years ago so yeah so that's where I'm at that's that's kind of got me into this chair and uh, you know lot, lots of little pieces to skip over there of course but yeah. but uh, that's that's kind of the story that I tell of cop to therapist yeah, and that's you know, it's it's a rare switch over, right? Like there there's not a ton mm -hmm. of law enforcement or, or first responders in general that do make that transition, or or if they try to make that transition, it's pretty it's pretty hard. Yeah, just oh, yeah. because of the the difference in approach. I mean, what the school teaches you is probably something different than what you actually utilize. Oh sure, in fact, I even tell people that you know, graduate school is kind of like the academy. Like I'm glad I have it. Uh, I'm glad that I work in a industry that's protected by licenses and uh, by by requirements. So I'm I'm glad that I have that. It's a very professional degree and definitely set me up well. But it's kind of like the academy. You know, you graduate the police academy, you think you know everything. You know, like 0.1 percent what you need to know, and, and that's not academy's fault. It's just you don't know yet. You haven't done it. Yeah. And and I, and I think a lot of a couple things to what you said about that tough transition. One is it takes a lot of school, you know, and it takes a lot of experience. And the problem is if you get the experience first, like the few of us that have that have kind of made this transition, man, you feel really old for school. You know, here I, I was going to school with 18 year olds and, and we definitely had did not see eye to eye, yeah. you yeah. know, I know. Uh, 
So uh, graduate school is a little bit better because a little more up, uh, a little more centric on uh, the job and what we wanted to do. Student body's a little more. But it was still a yeah. little bit, yeah, a little more life experience, yeah. you know. But I still ran into it a lot. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and uh, yeah, still ran a, a lot of roadblocks. But yeah, no, nobody makes that transition because one, it's that. Those are both careers. That's not that's not career one of policing, and then I teach firearms once in a while, you know, when you retire. So it's a, it's a whole nother career process. So there's not a lot, and by the time you get the experience, you don't go to the school. If you go to the school, you don't have the experience. So yeah, it's catch twenty two, I guess. Yeah, but but uh, I mean, immediately the reality is is that you are in the position that you're at because unfortunately you've earned it right like that's i think that's where a lot of this this talk comes into play because you mentioned briefly that if nothing else you were going to find out what the hell was wrong with you mm-hmm. right and did that did that happen i mean like did you did you get to actually through schooling get that inner look at yourself and understand what was going on with you chemically physically mentally everything so so yes and no and what i mean by that is i did finally figure it out well, you know, I'm not perfect, but I did finally figure out what's up. I've got my wife and my kids and my house and my good job and uh, good mental status. I'm in the play, best place I've ever been in my life, you know, mentally. And uh, not, not a lot bothers me, you know, which is nice to have after 20 years of having everything bother you. Mm-hmm. Um, but the, the part that's the no is, the, did I get that through school? Uh, I didn't. You know, I, I, I learned a lot. I don't want to take away from the education. I don't want to take away from... The necessity to get that education to have a license in order to protect that field. I don't want people just making it up and doing it, you know. But, but uh, I got all the way through their PhD and still didn't know. I had some idea. We talked about trauma. We talked about depression, anxiety, and but it's uh, I still didn't know. What I what when I really started to learn it was seeking out that further education. Just like in law enforcement, you know, we tell everybody. Uh, take every training you can get your hands on, whether you need the certification, whether it's something you're interested in, whether it's something that'll help you later, whatever makes you a better cop. Watch the videos, watch, you know, there's so much out there now for free. And even telling guys, you know, like, hey, just because your agency doesn't pay for it doesn't mean you can't go to it. You know, like you're, you're going to put your, your own foot out there sometimes. Yeah, and we, so, we talked about that. Skin, yeah. Skin in the game. You got to. You yeah. got to. It, it makes you better at what you do. So I'm a lifetime learner. I'm constantly trying to learn and get better and don't think I know it all. So I, I go into looking for more what the heck is wrong with me. If we still haven't figured this out yet in 10 years of college, 12 years of college, how am I going to figure this out? I went to a, a, hear a talk by a gentleman who's up at NYU and he's uh, considered a like, one of the greatest child psychiatrists, child trauma psychiatrists. And I'm sitting in the audience and he has this really monotone voice and I'm starting to starting to wear out on him, but I know he's supposed to be a genius. And he starts talking about the brain and what goes on during trauma. And it didn't give me everything. It gave me a lot though. It gave me a good base. And, and while he's talking, I'm thinking, I'm sitting in the audience thinking, man, this is like 90% of my clients he's talking about right now. And then it hit me. This dude's talking about me. Like this is a brain thing, you know? And I had to take that and refine it and understand it more and keep reading it and get trained in this and trained in that. And, and, and it's all culminated in kind of a philosophy of trauma mm-hmm. uh, that I get to use every day for myself, for, for people around me, for my clients. But not necessarily from school, but the, the, the mission did get completed at least that it kind of figured out what the heck was wrong with me. And now I get to you know, pass that on and share it to other people. 
Yeah, and that's that's part of what I think is is one of the more interesting thing about working with first responders who either know they have you know somewhat. I mean, for me to dig it out of some people, it's I have to explain what trauma actually is. Mm-hmm. You know, if you sit in a room full of first responders. And you say, how many people in this room have experienced trauma? You're going to get about five out of 100 that raise their hands. Then you're going to say, okay, well, let me tell you what trauma is for X, Y, and Z and what it does to the brain and body. And here's some of the symptoms. Here's some of the signs. And every single person in that room will raise their hand. Sure. Right? And and it's, it's so interesting to see. And... Like, have you been able to see a difference in people's responses once you you go that brain route? Like, it's it's what I've seen is when I talk to them about it, there's almost like a, a sigh of relief that like they're just not fucked up. Yeah. Like that's just not the core of it. They're just not. It's it's not that. It's chemically. Yep. Absolutely. Things have happened in your brain. To here's and here's the result. Yep. Right. The anger, the nightmares, the. You know, I mean, it goes down the diet. It goes to everything, every yep. facet of life. Well, it, it, it absolutely is important. It's so important to me, in fact, uh, that it's my first session with people. Okay. It is, yeah. is here's what's up. I got an hour. I need to get some information from you. I'll let you fill me out. See, we're going to talk well together. I need to get some, some stuff about what's going on right now. But my intake's only an hour. You know, it's all that they'll, all insurance will pay me for. So, mm-hmm. Uh, it's not about the money, but I got to make a living. So we got an hour here and typically the second half, if not the last quarter of that session together is me explaining what goes on in the brain during trauma and, um, what I get from the end of that is exactly what you said. Maybe they're not fixed, whatever fixed is. Maybe they're not better. Maybe they're not, uh, done. Maybe. It doesn't all make sense yet, but to see the relief of, oh, so I'm not screwed up then. I just got this thing I got to work on. Yeah. You just got a limbic system problem. This, we're going to work on this. Yeah. It's a fixable problem. Yeah. Uh, and to see that relief and people would actually come back sessions later and say, man, like everything's not great. I'm still on some nightmares or I'm still angry or I'm still having trouble at home or whatever's going on. But what you said the first time at least made me feel like I wasn't crazy. Like that took like 50% off the problem right there. Yeah. When, when they could go home and have a reaction or, or have the reaction work, maybe they didn't know how to deal with yet, how to make better yet, but they could at least say, Oh, that's that, that's that trauma thing he was talking about. Yeah. All right. We can get on top of this. I mean, for, for the viewers and this may be a huge ask, right. And it may be a private session thing, but like, is there a way you could give us a brief, like overview of what that conversation is. Yeah, hundred percent. I'd love to. Um, so what I, what I typically tell people to kind of explain what's going on is when we look at stress or trauma psychology, we look at two parts of the brain. Uh, first is the prefrontal cortex. It's in the front of the brain on both hemispheres. I call yeah, the, it the thinking brain. The decision making portion yeah, of your brain. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, not this thinking brain is not fully formed till age twenty five. I was carrying a gun at age twenty one, so make it that what you want. Uh, some people get it a little sooner, hopefully, but. So you got this, this prefrontal cortex, and clearly we need it. It takes its time. It's not too worried about emotion. How did this affect our past? How will this affect our future? What should we do here? And clearly we need that one. The other part of the brain that I'm really interested in is the limbic system part of the brain. Most people have heard it called the fight or flight. It's made of things like the hippocampus, the amygdala, a bunch of technical terms. But this fight or flight or limbic system has one job, and we need it as well. If we're driving down the interstate out here and somebody crams their brakes in front of us, uh, if all we have is the prefrontal cortex, it's thinking, 
oh, look, the brake lights are on, the distance is closing, we need to evaluate some options here. We're in trouble, right? We need the limbic system to go. Uh-oh, cram on the brakes, we all stop. Didn't even think about cramming on the brakes. Cool. Well, that's the easy civilian side. Uh, we also need it in law enforcement uh, for obvious reasons of fight or flight, right? The problem is a couple things. One is that limbic system, it's a dummy switch. It's either all the way on or all the way off. There's no in-between. There's no nervous, there's no anxious, there's no thinking about danger. If you're thinking about danger walking up to a domestic, that's still thinking. Right? If you're anxious going into a building, that's still thinking. Fight or flight is fight or flight, period. We need it to be that way because we need it to be faster than everything else. And it is. Thousands of seconds faster sometimes. So we need it to be on and off. We need it to be a quick switch. That's good, except now it's all the way on or all the way off. We have no in-between. And the more we use it, the more sensitive it gets. We know this for a couple reasons. One is uh, brain scans. We know that when the limbic system gets used too much, whether it be acutely over a lifetime of trauma, chronically over a major event, then or that was backwards, chronically over a lifetime of trauma, acutely over a, a major event, is that not only does it change in size, which is weird to see on a brain scan. The hippocampus and amygdala actually change size. But changes in strength. And we know this because we took a bunch of 18-year-olds. They just joined the military. We scanned their brain. They went to combat, came back. We scanned their brain again. You see the brain scans are different colors light up. That tells me about what's going on, blood flow, what's working. What we found was the only thing working was the limbic system. Didn't matter what I asked them. What's the serial number on your gun? What's your favorite place to eat? What's your girl's friend's name? Where are you going home to? Where are you from? Didn't matter. Everything was an emergency. Well, that's pretty handy for cover and concealment. Not so handy for, hey, where do you want to go to dinner tonight? Right? All those fights you have with your spouse. Yeah, let's go to a movie. Yeah. You know, all, the, all the civilian-esque stuff that... Yeah, that's not know. so handy, yeah. right? Not, yeah. not so handy to be keyed up like that. So, so everything's an emergency. The brain scans tell us this. The other reason, the one I think people uh, make people feel a lot better... Or, or at least start to understand it, is the other reason we know this thing's kind of oversensitive and taking over is the physical symptoms that happen. So when your limbic system detects a real emergency, real life or death emergency, it has a job. And its job is to give you the tools that you need in order to get out of this emergency, right? Fight, flight, freeze, whatever it is. Mm-hmm. It does that by speeding up your heart to get more blood. We breathe faster to get more oxygen. It heats up our body so our tendons and ligaments won't tear going from a cruiser to a fight. It's not like we stretch on the way there, right? We get a dump of adrenaline so we're stronger. Shuts off the digestive system because it turns out not so handy to use the bathroom in a fight. Shuts it off. And it gives us tunnel vision or hones our senses in. That's, that's its job. It's what it's supposed to do. Well, what does a panic attack, an anxiety attack, or I submit an anger attack look like? Heart racing, breathing fast, sweating for no reason, stomach's all jacked up, shaking from adrenaline, and senses are jacked up. So what that tells me is the limbic system is doing exactly what the limbic system is supposed to do. Just at the wrong time. Yeah. Right? The, the, the limbic system is doing limbic system stuff. Okay. Let's fix the limbic system. Right? And, and where I culminate that with is kind of what you said before, a little expanded, is turns out you're not crazy or stupid or messed up or jacked up or can't handle yourself or weak or uneducated or not smart enough or strong enough. Turns out you have a limbic system problem. Big deal. Let's fix that. I see it fixed on my couch every day. I see it fixed online every day. This limbic system. We know what to do. This is a brain problem. This isn't a weakness problem. It's not a can't handle it. It's a limbic system problem. The last way I kind of describe the limbic system that seems helpful is 
limbic system is like the smoke alarm of the brain. It's always looking for danger, right? If you go home and burn dinner tonight, smoke alarm goes off, but it's no big deal. You open the windows and the doors, you laugh, then you go out to eat. No big deal. Smoke alarm goes off at 4 a.m. It's a different ball game. Where's the shoes? Where's the kids? Where's the dog? How do we get out of here? Why won't that thing shut up? The point, though, is same smoke alarm. Smoke alarm's job is not to determine whether this is burning chicken or burning drywall. It's to go, hey, there's smoke over here. You have a problem. Let me give you the tools you need. Wake up and hear this and come check this out, right? And I don't want it to take its time to decide what kind of smoke it is. I just wanted to say, problem, and then I'll go fix it, right? Uh, It could be too slow. It can malfunction. I just wanted to see smoke and tell me that. Well, if you go home tonight and you burn dinner, and smoke alarm hasn't gone off yet, but you know it's going to, and you pull your little chair over to the smoke alarm and stand on it and say, listen, I appreciate all you've done for our family, but I don't need you to go off tonight. It's just chicken. Still goes off, right? Its job is to see smoke and tell you about it, not to evaluate it. What, what's this analogy for? Turns out you can't talk yourself out of the smoke alarm going off, right? Turns out when it goes off, it goes off. You can't just talk yourself out of it. Now, there's some things to be able to talk yourself out of maybe an, an anxiety attack or panic. or Yeah. Yeah, we're, we're, we're not going to we're, we're say that's not there. But talking yourself into it not going off, impossible. Its job is to see smoke and tell you there's smoke. That's it. And, and, and hopefully people will see through that conversation. One, again, what I said before, not crazy or stupid or messed up or jacked up, which is a limbic system problem. Yeah. If you go to, a, uh, if you go to the hospital... And uh, you have a leg that's swollen and deformed and the bone sticking out of it. We know what to do with it. It's a broken leg. Big deal. We'll fix it. It's just a broken limbic system. That's it. 99% of the people see in my office is the problem. Yeah. And that's, right? I mean, that's stuff that I've, I've jumped into with clients before. And, and I relate that almost to, because the clients that we see, they're not sleeping. Like mm-hmm. there is zero sleep. Mm-hmm. And when I drop into that limbic system talk, the way that I equate it is, you know, for thousands of years as mankind, when was the most dangerous time for a human? Mm. When you're sleeping. Yeah. Right? You know, like the fire's going there, the dinosaurs are out, whatever. And the enemy is out there, and whether it's a tiger or a bear, the easiest way for them to kill you is while you're asleep. And so you, you tell me that you're not sleeping, you're waking up, you're having these, these attacks or whatever it may be. Well, the limbic system mm-hmm. is not functioning correctly. And the primal portion of you is saying, I'm in danger. Mm-hmm. So why would I sleep soundly if I'm in danger constantly? Yeah. It's, it's that's, and like that, that portion to them, like you break it down in such a way, it makes so much sense. But if they've never heard anything like this before, mm. I mean, how many jaw dropping people do you have that do they just kind of stare at you and let you go the whole time? Oh yeah. You hundreds, know? hundreds. Yeah. Because one of the things I have to watch for myself, it, it, it was kind of like policing. Cops do this too. Therapists do this too. Uh, I forget that I, I eat and breathe and sleep and live this stuff just like I did in law enforcement. So when their jaw does drop open and they're like, I never heard that before. Honestly, to this day, all these years later, my third, my first thought is still like, seriously, you didn't know all that? Like, Oh yeah, that's right. I had to go to school forever and then figure it out afterwards. Right. But, but seriously, to this day, my brain's still like, you didn't actually know that part yet. Well, it's common sense, right? Is what you, you what we think now. Right. And that's, that's, yeah. No different than policing. When people would ask you a question and you're like, seriously, you don't know the answer to that question. You you don't, 
You don't know why we say Miranda. You know, you, you don't know that. No, because who cares? If you're not in that, if you're not in that culture, if you're not into that world, why would I learn all this stuff outside of it? Now everything's falling apart and I need help. Luckily, there's some people out there that know how to fix this problem or at least how to talk about it, you know, make it feel normalized. And, and I've gotten to where to say all that a little quicker in certain circumstances, I tell people that think of anything that's going on, any of the symptoms that you're having a problem with. We don't like the word symptoms, but in anything you have going on and look at it through kind of what you were saying is as, as the theory of the brain's primary job is to keep you safe, right? After a trauma, the only thing your brain wants to know is that you're not susceptible to that trauma again. That's what it really wants to know that you're not, it's not going to happen again. So if you look at that and you look at all the reactions through this lens of safety, all these reactions make sense. We need to do some work to get you out of this mode. And that's what we do. But if you look at it through safety, it all makes sense. Why do you have nightmares? Why do you freak out when you pull into a place? Why do you hear the tones go off on your radio in the car and you start sweating for no reason when you used to love this job? Why do little things piss you off so much? Right? Uh, safety. Brain's going, uh-oh, here we go again. Smoke mm-hmm. alarm goes off. Yeah. And, and so catalyst-wise, right, to, to make, start making that change, you tell me if I'm wrong, but I've heard some stories about you doing some wonders with the MDR. Like that is your, is that your opening point? Or do you start first with the more didactic, you know, kind of conversation? I, I think the reason I'm asking you this is because a lot of what I have understood is that if someone is not in the headspace or a safe environment, whatever mm-hmm. that may be, EMDR can be a very dangerous path. And I want to tell you right now, I'm, I don't have a sacred cow to that thought, but that's, that's what's been told to me before. Am, and am, am, I, am I wrong? You can definitely start too early. And now I will say probably 90 to 95% of people that come to my office and that we use EMDR pretty quickly with are at least in a manageable yeah. place. You know, they're, they're, they're not suicidal. Maybe they have been. They're not, um, they're not shaking uncontrollably. You know, they're not currently uh, under the influence. You know, like they're, they're functioning okay. Not, not good. Uh, they're functioning. They're still going to work. They're still taking care of their kids. They're still feeding themselves. So those folks can jump into, to, and when I say EMDR, I kind of mean the, the, the mechanical part of EMDR, the, the part that anybody that's heard of EMDR thinks about, right? The actual processing trauma. Yeah, tracking of the eyes and but, the But memories. the better question to that answer, or better answer to that question of, you know, do you start it immediately? I start thinking EMDR the second I laid eyes on you. Now, I may not be thinking about what we need to jump into the mechanics of it yet. That, that's going to come with time of what, what's the problem and what's the trigger and what's going on. But, but the idea of EMDR is that today's uh, dysfunctional emotions, anger, anxiety, depression, guilt, are created by previous life events. Previous can be age 2, 10, 15, 20, or yesterday. Previous life events that left us feeling helpless, hopeless, or not good enough. And today... That is what's being re-triggered. The helpless, hopeless, they're not good enough. The, the example I always use is myself. Here I am, you know, a, a strong officer individual, 
who have dealt with thousands of terrible things in my career, and I'm standing at this lady's car listening to her die because I'm not strong enough to get her out. Now, looking back, I know that's not true. It, a crane couldn't have got her out. You know, we, I saw the wreck afterwards. Nothing was getting her out. But in my mind, I was helpless and hopeless and not good enough to get her out. So now, everything that ever happened from there forward that made me feel helpless, hopeless, or not good enough is what re-triggered things. It's what sent me over the edge. Not another car, not a fire. I'd go to fires and not be worried about it. I'd go to fatal wrecks and not think about it. It was the things that made me feel helpless, hopeless, or not good enough that re-triggered all that. Because one, those are words we like to say as cops anyway. Helpless, hopeless, not good enough. No, I'm the strongest one here, actually. I'll take care of business, right? Um, so we don't like to use those words. And, and, and for a while, I thought about kind of changing the words to more cop-friendly or because those are EMDR words. That's the, that's the adaptive information processing model. And, but, but when I would say those words and the person across the room would drop their shoulders like, yep, that's it right there. I never thought of it that way. When I was five, this happened. Or when I was 20, this happened. Or yesterday, this happened. Or two weeks ago, this happened. It had nothing to do with uh, the event coming back. Nobody wants nightmares or flashbacks or why does that stuff stick around? And we can talk about the, you know, hemispheres of the brain and all that idea. But why do those stick around? Because I felt helpless, hopeless, and not good enough. So, so to first answer the kind of EMDR question, uh, it is what I would say is the go-to modality I would use for PTSD and trauma and, and those things. There are definitely things that come in my office that, that don't require that. You know, we go a little different didactic route or, or, or traditional way. But from the moment you come in, my therapist brain is thinking, what put you in this state that hasn't been processed, that's, that's still raw and a problem? So we're always moving that direction. Now, whether it's two sessions or five sessions or 10 sessions before we try to process a memory, do the, the mechanical part people know of, the eye movements or the, you know, the bilateral stimulation, or that, that's going to come with each individual person that comes in. But I'm always thinking it. It's always in there because that's how you fix all that stuff about the brain I just said. That's how you fix the limbic system overdrive. That's how you fix the alarm. Nothing's going to make those things good. I just got to get the alarm to quit going off. Put me in overdrive. Put me in an over-emotional overload. Right? I didn't yell at my kids because they wouldn't clean up their room. I yelled at my kids because I was in an emotional overload about them not cleaning up their room. Who cares? You know, maybe some... Maybe some punishment has to be laid out and they have to go in timeout or take their tablet away. Or, yeah, we're still going to do that stuff. But I'm in an overload, right? If you don't listen to what I say, somebody could get hurt, right? That's, that's what we're taught from day one of the academy. It's a good lesson. It's important. But I'm in emotional overload driven by the fact that now I can't fix all the problems because here's this lady that died in front of me. I mean, and, and I don't know if this is going to relate, but I, I personally, I know we talked about the window of tolerance today, and I don't know, I, I saw you shake your head a couple of times when we, we went through it, but I've been doing personally a lot of research on that window of tolerance mode just because it's a different view mm-hmm. on that, that how to self-regulate where it's put out in a way that I feel, at least first responders especially, can understand, right? Like there's, you know, the fight or flight, and then you've got 
you know, the, the way down at the bottom of the depression and the, and the window of tolerance, which is the correct reaction mm-hmm, to your mm-hmm. child who has not cleaned their room or, right. or whatever it may be. And like, I, I've just thought so much that if, if we could figure out a way in these academies or in these type of things to explain it in a way that is not so therapeutic, Mm-hmm. Uh, the therapeutic approach and, and describe this window of tolerance and how to go home and self-regulate back into parent mode and civilian mode. I feel like it would help solve a lot of issues, right? Yeah. Yep. But it, that seems very difficult to actually do, right? Because I don't think any people realize that they are still, if we're going to the prefrontal cortex portion, mm-hmm. in that fight or flight part of their brain yeah and it's interesting you know i've seen that kind of presented different ways that window you know yeah. uh, gil martin talks about kind of the emotional yeah. roller coaster yeah, absolutely and that's um, where this all comes from is oh, gil absolutely. Martin. so i yeah. want to give him that credit on this podcast absolutely this is, this is and, and i from. still to this day use that that uh, roller coaster uh idea that emotional roller coaster and my first connection with gil martin i've since met him and you know spoken to the same things as him and um just through the kind of public safety and mental health realm and Super smart guy, you know, former cop, so he definitely knows his stuff too. And uh, I'd worked for a, a small PD and sheriff's department when I first came on, before I'd gone to the bigger cities in the state. So I'd gone through an academy. I'd had a couple years' experience when I when I moved to Kentucky and, and started working for a city before I ended up going to the state. And uh, in that academy, so I had two whole years under my belt, which is everything when you have two years on. Like, you've, you've made it. It's, so, it's, right? it's more than... <laughs> Uh, 18 months you know what i mean yeah, right, <laughs> right. so so but i have to go through an academy again because yeah. they won't recognize my out-of-state certification so about halfway through they give us his book go martin's book what year is this Ooh, 2001 okay 2002 maybe it had just co- probably just come out yeah that's, back yeah. Then, yeah. Yeah, yeah yeah and of course i see this doctor title on there and you know don't know anything about this guy and talking about emotional survival and my first thought is like man i've been a cop for two years what's this doctor guy gonna tell me uh, about uh, mental health for public safety. It's going to be another one of those shrinks. Of course, fast forward as a side note, now that it says doctor in front of my name, some people sometimes I'm thinking like, what's this doctor going to tell me about public safety? Anyway, yeah. so I have to write a book report on it. And I wait till the last minute because I don't want to do it. And I start skimming through this book and I'm a couple pages in, I'm like, what's this guy going to, oh, wait a minute. That sentence right there, that's what I do when I get home. And this sentence right here is uh, exactly how I act in public. So that was that many years ago to this day. Uh, I can't say that I remembered everything about the book over the years, but I remembered through that time and to this day about that emotional roller coaster. So I will still present kind of his idea of emotional roller coaster to people in the room uh, when I go speak, when whether they're clients, whether it's online. And, and here's where I kind of add a piece to it is, uh, you know, I won't go too far into it because most people are familiar with it or they can kind of find it, but you know, most people kind of maintain that middle ground. And the way I like to present it is like, it's kind of like this graph that I'll show them. And, you know, most people stay in the middle and accountant hates his job and he drops down a little bit, but then he has a margarita with lunch and it goes back up and then his boss yells at him and he goes down, but you know, he goes home to his hot wife and it goes back up, you know, and every now and then somebody like that will have say a car wreck and it shoots him up way above the, the map, right? That anxiety side, that high stress. Side. And I feel like it's very rarely. Yeah. Like true high anxiety oh, sure, and sure. high stress. Yes. Yeah. 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 Well, and so they'll shoot up. Well, everything is opposite and equal reaction, right? So now they drop below, which there's your kind of depression, your lethargic, your don't want to make decisions. 
uh, I think you call it the happy chair, the magic chair that you want to go home yeah. and sit in, right? Every uh, 18-year-old. Right yeah, now. right. Just Sorry, drop I, it yeah, I couldn't <laughs> right? help so, it. Yeah. So uh, the problem is, of course, and this was still his point, was uh, we don't typically live in the middle. We're up and down and up and down and up and down and up and down all day long. So, and I love that. And I remember that to this day and how prevalent that is. And you're talking about first responders, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. So how prevalent that is. And, and here's what I kind of add to it. Because years later, I'm looking at this thing. I'm like, man, this makes so much sense. But I'm having trouble making sense out of how to not do that with the kind of job that I have. And I don't know that his whole idea was to get rid of that. But, but I'm like, I haven't learned anything yet over all these years to keep me from doing that. I still do that. It's cool that it makes sense. Well, we all are kind of okay, public safety members, with the being over the top. Well, it's fun. It's a crazy shift. And yeah, I'm tired and hated to have to deal with that idiot again. But ah, whatever. It's the job. It's that bottom part under the graph that everybody has trouble with, right? Spouse wants to talk to you. You don't want anything to do with it. You're tired. You don't go to the gym. You don't eat right. You know, kids are screaming. Yeah, kids are screaming. You don't want to deal with it. So instead of just trying to kind of cart, I'm not going to go home and be like that at the bottom. That That's cool to say, but it's going to happen. Why don't we bring the top down a little bit? What if we're bringing down the overreactions, right? We still get a stressful job, but what if we're bringing down the top? Because remember, it's equal and opposite reaction. So if we're bringing down the top, then we're going to shore in the bottom automatically. And we're still going to have a big, it's a hard job. We're still going to have a, a, a lot of that in there. But instead of just saying, well, don't go home and sit on the couch and be this way and, and be that person at the bottom. Why don't we quit overreacting on the top? It's going to bring up the bottom automatically. I can teach you and show you and use EMDR and rational therapy and all these things to help you understand how not to overreact and how to get your body from stopping doing that, from the smoke alarm going off when it doesn't need to, when it's minor like the chicken being burned, and so the house being burned down, and then you just won't drop to the bottom anymore, right? So, yeah, I give them a lot of credit for that. It's an amazing thing, but, but again, that all ties into that, uh, the brain problem. Right. If I'm overreacting, if I'm over emotional and I'm shooting up over the top of the chart, then, then I can't stop myself from bottoming out. It's not going to happen. It's physical. It's the sympathetic and parasympathetic system. We're made this way. What if I can just, just stop going over the top all the time through things like EMDR, get this limbic system calmed down. And then I'm just kind of hanging out in the middle again, like it used to be. And, and, and uh, you said something earlier about, you know, that we, we see it, that, that maybe once in their life, maybe twice in their life, they shoot up there. Uh, most civilians will see one and a half to two critical events in their life. The law enforcement officer will see between 750 and 800 in a 20-year career. That tells me a couple things. One, we're pretty badass because we keep going. Absolutely. Right? Absolutely. And two, it's not the event. Can't be. If the event was the problem, your brain would have quit on day two. Your second event, the brain would have said, we're done. I cannot physically handle this anymore. So it's not the event. The event event impacts us, absolutely. But it is our interpretation of the event, typically that leaves us feeling helpless, hopeless, not good enough, that will always cause that event to be around. That's the raw nerve that's stuck in the brain. Hmm. And, And even if people don't like thinking, Helpless, hopeless, not good enough. Maybe they're in a place in their life, their position where those words don't feel like they fit, but they know they're still overreacting to things. I always say that, that there's four primary dysfunctional emotions. Dysfunctional just meaning not functional. 
Anger, anxiety, depression, and guilt. Nobody wants anxiety. Nobody wants depression. Nobody wants guilt. That anger one kind of feels right sometimes, right? It feels justified. Mm -hmm. It feels like it's making things happen. It's not when we look at the scheme of things, right? But, But what I always say is, I was really good at anger hiding the other three. Yeah. I don't want to be depressed. I don't want to be anxious. I don't want to be guilty. So I'll use anger to hide the other three. Well, I argue the same thing is with the helpless, hopeless, not good enough. I'm not helpless or hopeless or I am good enough. I'm the greatest cop we got out there. I'm not helpless. I, I put my uniform on and take care of business every day. I mean, your life is completely falling apart around it. But you're right. Uh, why? Because your anger uh, is covering the helpless, hopeless, not good enough. And that doesn't mean sad sack you, you know. It just means there's something your brain still hasn't figured out how to process and makes it feel not good enough and helpless, and that's what's getting re-triggered. It's not the event. The event's over. Yeah. The event impacts us, but it's over. So this you, you struck a real big chord with my thought process here. And this is something I really want your opinion on because I, I don't, I'm not in public safety. I don't have the answer to this. I think Josh and I have had side conversations about this. But, you know, for at least the beginning of when I started working in this field, we were seeing a lot more 20-year guys, 25-year mm-hmm. guys, you know, that have a prolonged career of re-exposure to trauma. Sure. Why is it, do you think, that in the last two to three years, that has dropped down to the two-year guys? The five-year guys, because what you just said was it wasn't the, the you know, by two, call number two, we'd be done, mm-hmm. right? Like mm-hmm. your, your body's given up. So why do you feel like in the public safety field, and this is everyone, police, fire, EMS, I'm talking, I'm not just talking one specific field. Mm-hmm. They are reaching, I, I, I guess I would call it a breaking point, right? Like that's sure. uh, the catalyst that drives them to either seek treatment, quit, whatever it may be. Why are they driven there so much earlier? than ever before i I think there's a couple of reasons one is the obvious reason we're getting better about talking about this Mm. right i think we still screw it up sometimes but we're getting a lot better about talking about this and one of the reasons that i always use kind of my story when i go speak places and what i typically do it wouldn't have worked here of course what i typically do is i get up introduce myself as the doctor guy you know i don't tell you where i'm from what i do tell you that I'm a, I'm a specialist in complex PTSD and adult childhood trauma and public safety and high-risk careers. And, and then I say, let me, let me tell you, I'm going to tell you a story and then I'll tell you how I got into this field. That whole story I told of me, I tell as a third person, as a client. Oh, I worked with a client that went to this car wreck and things started falling apart. And at the very end of that, I click it over and show me in uniform. And I'm like, by the way, that's, that's my story, you know? I tell it in the third person one because I don't necessarily, I don't really want the sympathy for the story. It turned out kind of a cool job. I appreciate when people see that and, you know, like, oh, man, you had it rough. So I appreciate that, but I don't want to be the focus of the story. I want the story to be the focus of the story. But the reason I'm willing to tell that all over the place is because we're getting better about teaching about trauma, I think. I mean, this this podcast is an example, right? We're getting better at it. I've spoke at agencies routinely and go to in-services all the time and speak and uh, different public safety summits and counseling things about military and public safety. We're doing a better job of it, but we're still teaching that what PTSD is, is you go to an event, you can never work again, right? Yeah. You go to this thing and then you can't put your uniform on. Mm-hmm. Man, I worked for seven more years. I was a disaster, but I worked for seven more years. 
So what I tell people is, and what I typically call the presentations that I give is the real signs of PTSD, because that is what PTSD really looks like, right? It, it's that. And, and anybody that works in mental health and listening to this is shaking their head. Yes, because how rarely somebody comes in my office and says, I went to this thing and I don't think I can do this job anymore. It's, man, I got a lot of stuff in my bucket and I think it just tipped over. Absolutely. Right? Absolutely. Well, and that resonates well with me too because I, you know, I think of that too where it's like, hey, it wasn't the first uh, death. Mm-hmm. It wasn't the third. I don't know for sure in that sequence which number was the one that was that death by a thousand cuts but yeah. I reached that mark yeah you know yep. and I and and how many of us even know how far beyond that mark like you said seven years or whatever where you're able to stretch it out where um, part, so let me ask you this a, a, a just a thought that came to mind as you were explaining that is you know number one there, there's studies that suggest different numbers your clinical experience roughly what percentage of people come in for treatment that do have a uh, a, a early on early life experience traumatic thing mm-hmm. you know because so much of you know when you talk about EMDR and stuff it's it's there was that that catalyst like I was 11 years old mm-hmm. we were able to figure that out mm-hmm. okay so somewhere in, in that in that realm so the question I have is are, are is everything we're doing is it, is it well number one with whatever percentage of people that is is the dialogue and everything like that bringing that collision, so to speak, between our work-related traumatic events piling up at whatever number that may be and whatever that happened in their childhood? Mm-hmm. Are they colliding earlier on in somebody's career versus, for me, I was, and, and for you too, well into my career before they, they found each other, so yep. to speak, and, and through treatment, they were able, I mean, they had to be found through therapy. Right. Versus, I don't know that some of these guys aren't finding them inadvertently yep. just by going to work and being maybe more focused, as you suggest, on uh, the potential pitfalls of being in this line of work. Yeah. Uh, and the first part of that question, like what what percentage are coming with early trauma? I'd say the vast majority. Yeah. I wouldn't isn't say it, all. Isn't it like 80%? Probably. Like, yeah, if not yeah. more. Suggestive yeah. Studies yeah. And it, I mean, isn't there suggestive studies that even 50% have been molested as children of first responders? Yeah. So one of the things that I talk about in those talks is uh, what trauma does, not just to public safety, but, you know, we talk about that, the brain, like we talked about before, my story in the brain. And then what does trauma do? Well, one in five individuals in the U.S. have been molested as a child. Well, I'm talking to rooms of, 50 to 5,000 people. Mm-hmm. So do the math, right? Absolutely. And, and it's not a perfect science, one out of five. It's an average, right? But there's 50 people in the room. It's a lot more than one or two in that room that were probably molested as a child. right? So, so we absolutely bring that stuff with us. Now, is it overcomable? Absolutely. Mm-hmm. And I see it on my office every day. I see it online every day uh, in treatment programs and it is absolutely overcomable, but it is a major factor to the way that you process traumas later in life. And, and for the second part of that, why are they colliding so much sooner? I think it also answers part of the question of why are we seeing younger officers now? One, education piece is getting out there, right? Two, and, and, and this is just me interviewing younger officers 
I haven't worked the road in a while, you know, so I, I have to do this kind of by interview what I'm seeing is, especially over the last couple of years, this job doesn't feel worth it as much anymore, uh, yeah. right? Yeah. And so I think when, when we, we may have been hitting that mark at one and two and five years, there were still some, if even misplaced nobility of, duty. Yeah, it's just what it is, you know, duty. And, and not that they're not strong now and not that they're not tough now and not that they're not pushing through now. But you add the events over the last couple of years, you know, and I'm watching my friends get hurt and my friends get rioted against and uh, for, for regularly false narratives at that. And suddenly it doesn't feel worth it. And, and none of us did it for the pay. We wanted to make a decent living for our family. But I don't remember being upset about the pay mm-hmm. for all that time. You know, I'm sure later in life when I started to have kids and it became more prevalent. But I think earlier on now, and maybe there's more of a trauma piece to it than this, but the job just isn't quite as worth it anymore. So I'm not white knuckling it through anymore. What I'll see sometimes uh, in Kentucky, there's kind of this this phenomenon. Everybody retires about January 1st. There's something something with the algorithm where you get another quarter year of service or something. So everybody kind of waits till January 1st and uh, they retire. So I know with all those retirees, January 1st, about March, I'm going to have a lot of new retirees in my office. Now, that part is because I think that their bucket's full and that what keeps the lid on the bucket is the next mission, right? Uh, I, I can't not go to the next mission. I just got to put this one away and go to the next one. And I think when you don't have a mission anymore, or at least not one that feels like a mission, right? Because we all wanted to retire and be able to take care of a house better and go fishing and, you know, but that didn't feel like a mission. So once that comes off, the bucket falls over, right? I, I truly believe that. Well, so the earlier officers aren't necessarily having that full bucket tip over, but if I'm, how did we get that bucket full? I white knuckled my way through 20 years. You just did it, right? Whether that's because you were tough or you pulled your you know, boots up by your bootstraps or you were just told not say anything or it just had that duty and honor feeling, you white knuckle your way through it. And then you're not white knuckling it anymore and suddenly it feels like it's not worth it. Well, I think generations now are seeing that faster. Yeah. Man, this isn't worth it. What am I doing here? You mean I can take my four I can get I can do five years here and take my four oh one K because there's no pension and go down the road and do something else for a living? You know what? I've enjoyed this. I think I'll go do that. You know? Whereas many of us felt more stuck. Like, oh, I just gotta make it three more years, yeah. you know. Mm-hmm. So we had that mission and that 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 the theory I have of white knuckling it through, right? And, and how I came up with that, because I think it kind of fits. E- even those that are listening that aren't public safety, it fits. You know, let, let's say you have a traumatic childhood and then you're bullied in high school and you find your high school sweetheart at 17, you get married and you pop out a couple, couple kids, you go to college, you got the two nice Lexus SUVs and the white picket fence and two good jobs. You made it, you're doing it, right? And it feels good and... Maybe you did. Maybe you did overcome all that stuff and you made it and you're doing good. But how many times do you see that couple 20 years later, the last kid goes off to college and they realize, I don't really like it here that much. Empty nesters, yeah. man. Empty nesters. Yeah. That's, I've, I've tried most interesting thing. I'm sorry, but I've got a retired first responder up there right now. That is an empty nester as well. Yeah. And absolute come apart. Yeah. 
I mean, the combination of the two just broke the dude. I white-knuckled my way through 20 years yeah. of marriage. I white-knuckled my way through and did a good job. We're not saying it's all fake. But then get through there and realize, wow, we did that all for the kids. And I don't really like it here that much. I earned my easy chair, but it's not comfortable anymore. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah absolutely. The hypo chair that we wanted to sit in isn't comfortable anymore. Couldn't wait. I can't find anywhere to, there's nowhere to stand, sit, or anything that feels comfortable anymore. And it's like, yeah, you break. Yep. Yep. And, and, and I saw this, like, when I got out, I was extremely angry, of course. Very angry, very angry at the agency, at the people around me that said they'd always be there. A lot of anger. I, I've since come away from a lot of that and got to... Got to talk to some of those people that were in that mid-level management and realize they didn't know what to do, man. You know, I, I saw a captain years later, and he's like, man, I've read your story. I, you know, I, I hate that we butted heads like that at the end. I'm like, yeah, but I, you don't know what to do with me. Like, your job was to make sure I was high activity and, you know. He's doing his job, man. He's just doing to, his job. To the best of his ability, most likely. Yeah, and some, some 15-year guy comes and says, I'm falling apart. What's he supposed to do with that? You know, yeah. so so th- there are very few people that I still harbor at least a little resentment for. You know, they are still out there, but mm-hmm. but uh, they're probably so high up in the ranks they didn't know me anyway. I, I mean, that's you being a human, though. I like it. it the, the bottom line is like we're allowed to have carry resentments. We're allowed to be angry at people yeah. for for things that they they did to us or against us or or whatever it may be. And like you know, there's. The Brene Brown thing is like the guilt and shame, right? I'm sure you're familiar with that. Sure, yeah. Don't know how much, how well you, you dive into that, but at least on the addiction standpoint, like guilt is sometimes appropriate. Mm-hmm. It means we're not a narcissist. Mm-hmm. Like it means that we feel empathy or other things because we did something wrong. And then when shame is built into that, it creates a whole nother monster. Mm-hmm. And, and so. What I like to say is, uh, so, so I'm a rational motor behavior therapy mm-hmm. practitioner as well. Got to train at Albert Ellis Institute, some of the coolest trainings I've ever done. And, and um, same idea, they use the terms uh, remorse and guilt. Mm-hmm. Remorse is things you wish you'd done, not done, or had done differently. We all have those. Not to water anybody's down, but we have those. Guilt is things I wish I'd done and not done and had done differently, and I'm also a piece of crap for doing it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right? It's the same kind of idea. Once you get to that guilt stage, you know, now, now I'm the problem. You know, when it's remorse, it was, well, there's some factors here that could have affected it. You know, but once it's guilt, it's guilt. And that anger is, is when I really got interested in EMDR. So I was doing therapy for a while, a couple of years at a private practice, doing well, doing well with clients. And I'd heard of EMDR. And uh, the first mistake I made is I went and looked it up on YouTube. It was some weird hippie lady waving oh, her hand man. in front of people and yeah. asking them if they feel better. I was not only against it. I was, I was antagonistic. Voodoo. People would call. Yeah. yeah. People would call and they're like, hey, it says you're a trauma specialist. Do you do EMDR? And I'm like, heck no. I do real therapy. Come and get some real therapy. We don't do that weird stuff. That's how I felt about neurofeedback, man. Oh, and, sure. And then I did it. Same, yeah. same yeah. exact shit. We, I mean, I made you do it basically earlier. Yeah. Same, yeah. same yeah. exact yeah. thing. Yeah. You know? Yeah. I, uh, so I'm against it for probably a year. And then I go to a conference, a post-curriculum seminar that we put on uh, six or seven times a year in my state. And, and uh, a, a former, well, at the time, current trooper turned therapist comes in. And he does EMDR on somebody that I know's stories lasted about 15 years. And in 30 minutes, he had done what was taking me three months to do with people. So now I'm intrigued and pissed 
because I got to get trained in it now. And every therapist that I look for is some weird, you know, toe loop, Santa wearing hippie therapist that I can't, I can't do it. I can't. So I got really lucky. Uh, I found this gentleman, uh, Dr. E.C. Hurley, in my opinion, was the best trauma therapist there was. He, he unfortunately passed away last year. Big mentor of mine. He was enlisted in Vietnam, in the Army. Got out, became an officer, made it all the way to colonel. And then became a therapist. And I'm like, this guy I could probably talk to. If this guy believes in EMDR, I'm going to go listen. Because here's a guy that's, he's a colonel in the Army. I mean, he's been there, done that. So... We go, and you, you get paired up with another therapist during training. And I get paired up with a master student at the time, which is fine. I'm sure she's a great therapist. But she hadn't even seen a client before. And you get me, like the angry Viking. Now you get me, right? So we split up, and uh, Dr. Hurley comes by, and he's like, didn't you say you've been in law enforcement like 15 years? So yes, sir. He's like, oof, give her like a 2 out of 10, not, not an 8 out of 10. So what I chose in some form or fashion, I don't remember the exact words, was when I drive by a state police cruiser, I'm livid. Like, I'm viscerally angry because I feel like they screwed me, you know, and kicked me out, didn't care, and did the one thing that they said, we'll all be there as brothers when you need us, and here I was floating around life by myself without them. Not the individuals. I had individual friends there still, but but the agency as a whole, I didn't get a pension. I applied for my pension. Um uh, I was denied the pension the first time I went back when the attorney was denied the second time, went back kind of hearing the third time, three strikes are out. So no pension, you know, here I was. So very angry. And what EMDR did for me is it didn't focus on what, what everybody thinks of EMDR as a critical event. And it, it focused on this thing that I'm dealing with now, this anger, this visceral anger. And I'd yell at my wife and kids after it. And, and uh, 30 minutes later, I'm like, man, I'm kind of pissed about that. Oh, well. All with life, you know. And this it's, is EMDR from the master student that from I've never seen From the master student who's reading it out of the book. Okay. Let, you know, word yeah. by word. I want to paint right? that picture for, yeah. for people that are listening. Like, I still, in fact, so she wrote it in my, uh, the book that we were using. And she wrote it. And to this day, I still have that book, like, sitting on my bookshelf of, like, look what this stuff does, man. And I, so I had a very different reaction. I, I didn't. By the time I'd got there, I didn't need to work on the lady that caught on fire. I was in a place in my life, and still this day, I'm like, oh, that was terrible. But, eh, okay. Because I know it wasn't the event, right? Uh, but it took time. It took time after that. What I tell people is the only, the, only, uh, the only thing that works besides EMDR is 20 years. You know? Yeah. You know? So It's still so, there, though. I mean, yeah, I, yeah. you know. It's still a problem. Oh, so, yeah. so, so. That really ex- expanded my understanding of EMDR. Of course, I got trained more and more years later and you know, went through certification and continued to learn as a lifetime learner about it. But it wasn't just the narrative that people know who have researched EMDR of, you know, like, because people come in and say, like, hey, man, I look at this EMDR thing. Like, I don't think I have a call that bothers me. And I, my childhood is okay. You know, it went great, but it's okay. And I don't think I have a, I don't think I have a call that bothers me. Well, it's, it's not necessarily a call, and it's not necessarily an event. You know, there's a whole lot more to it. What, what's going on now? i got to get rid of this anger. Well, give me an example of when you were angry the most. Oh, man, my wife and I had it out last night. All right. Uh, right when you feel like she disrespected you, which is what made, you said made you angry, uh, she said, I've asked you 10 times to go do this. 
what went through your head about yourself when she said that? Not good enough. Not good enough, right? So then I got angry. I covered up that, that depressed with angry, right? Hey, when was the last time you remember feeling like, when's the first time in your life you remember feeling not good enough? Oh, crap, right? So it doesn't have to be like, my dad did this, or mom did this, or the bully did this, or the call was this. It's, when's the, when's the first time you felt that negative cognition? When's the first time in your life you felt that not good enough, I'm not fast enough, I'm a piece of trash, I'm unwanted or unlovable. There's where it started, man. You know, And that may not be the thing we have to focus on, but to watch people's faces go, oh, crap. Oh, crap, I never thought of that before. You yeah. know? And somebody listening may not, may not have followed that along and seen that logic just yet. That's what we're for. That's what the therapist part is for. Yeah. But it's not just there's such a misnomer of EMDR of, I haven't been in a shooting. I'm a, I didn't go to combat. I didn't, you know, I haven't been to, I've been to lots of stuff, but none of it bothers me. Oh, something does. Well, and that's, you know, for the last 10 minutes or however long ago we mentioned and started bringing up, you know, a percentage of first responders have childhood trauma mm-hmm. or molestation or whatever it may be. Like, I want to put a disclaimer in there that that does not need to keep you from seeking treatment. Mm. Like the, it's the reason you should seek treatment. Well, no, I'm saying like if you don't have that. Oh, oh, right, right. Like the other way, yeah. Y- yeah. It does not mean I that you. Qualify. Yeah, exactly. Right. Oh, yes. That qualification piece. That's as you guys know, so many people, first responders specifically, will will underreport or even just think I'm not that bad because Steve went through this. Yeah, yeah. And I didn't. He was first on the scene. He saw that, and I didn't. You know, it did. Or he was assaulted as a child or whatever it may be. Right. And I wasn't like, right. that doesn't mean, and that's where you, the point you were just going. Yeah. Off of. Yeah. Well, it, it go back to the fact that I said the 750, 800, it's not the critical event. That's the problem. It's a problem. We're not going to blow it off, Yeah. but it's not the critical events. The problem It's that the event in whatever form it is, did not process the way that it should, which is what EMDR specialty is. And your brain hasn't put it away yet. So, if this is helpful to people, the way that I say EMDR works, and this is kind of a uh, the cop version. We got two hemispheres to our brain. Left left side of the brain is the logic side of the brain. The way I like to describe that is two plus two is four, whether you like it or not. It's just sitting over there on a shelf. Most people driving down the road right now listening to this are not thinking what to do if they get a flat tire. It's just sitting over there on a shelf. I'll use it when I need it. The right side of the brain is the chaos side of the brain. It's all the incoming information. Everything you hear today, everything you experience and see. Well, when you go to REM sleep, rapid eye movement sleep, your eyes are clearly closed. You're not looking at anything. The eyes are moving back and forth. We have this really cool design where the left side of the brain controls the right side of the body and vice versa. So I like to call it reversing the polarity. We have this cool design where we move our eyes now to, to stimulate the brain. Both hemispheres, same time. Rarely done. So... What's happening is, in REM sleep, is all information from the right side of the brain is passing over that corpus callosum in the middle, going into the logic side of the brain, best way to think of it. And it's trying to figure out what shelf to put that on. Well, if you got overcharged for something at the store today, it just goes in that not getting screwed again pile, right? You know, uh, the weather goes over there, the calls that you took go over there. What shelf do you put a burned up lady in a car on what, what shelf do you put a dead baby on? What shelf do you put child molestation on? 
There's no shelves for that. We're not supposed to see that stuff, right? That's why it's a trauma. We're not supposed to deal with that. So it gets stuck in the right side, becomes what I would call a raw nerve. And if you've ever had a kid fall and scrape their knee on the concrete, it's a raw nerve. You don't have to touch it to make it hurt. Blow air in a general direction, it hurts. Same thing. All that nerve needs is one little thing to set off that smoke alarm. And the other piece that was really helpful to me of understanding why this happens and goes back to what you were just saying about, I can't find the trauma or the thing. You may not know. And it doesn't mean that you're screwed up holding one. But when we put memories away, people tend to think that we put them away as like, oh, remember what happened on Third Street that time we went on that call? Nope. We put it away in a box of the sights and the smells and the beliefs and the thoughts and what happened and what yep. it looked like and what our bank account looked like and what Sarge said that day. And what the weather was like, and what uniform we had on, and what car we had to drive. All that stuff is a snapshot. Because again, the brain, think of it in the safety mindset, the brain is looking to keep you out of trouble. So it takes a snapshot of this really bad thing. It only needs one thing from that drawer to reactivate that raw nerve. Now that doesn't mean you necessarily think you're there, or you have a nightmare about it, or you think it's going all over again. But some people do. Yeah. Right. I've... Some people have the same physical reaction as if they were just there and, and they didn't yeah. need they didn't need to be standing at the house in front of where it happened what they needed was that stupid uniform they had to wear that dress uniform they had to wear that day and they were just remembered that they were assigned a pool car that day you need one thing for the brain to go oh great here we go again that's awesome yeah. i think i'm going to get us out of this how does it get us out of this by reacting as if it's an emergency yeah right I mean, I just to give you an example, this is really interesting that you bring this up because I was wondering about this just two weeks ago. I pulled out an old pair of shoes out of the depths of my garage and pulled them out and instantly back to a memory triggered by the shoes that was a traumatic experience sure. for me. And I remember sitting there like, how the fuck did this just happen? Yeah. How did I get to this place? I've done the work to be out of this. Yeah. Like, I've done the work. I've done the EMDR on this specific subject. I've done, you know, tons of therapy, all these stuff. But here I am seven years later from this event in the same spot I was the day it happened. Yep. From yep. a pair of fucking shoes hidden underneath my toolbox. Yep. Yep. And hopefully in a more processable place. Yes. Right. Absolutely. Than without the work. Yeah. But that's all it takes. There's still stuff that comes up for me that, that you know, give me... Make, makes my spine shrivel up or, you know, stands the hair up on my, on my arm or whatever. I just don't process it. Well, go back to my story of how, uh, of what I picked to work on that first time in DR was anger. And to be perfectly honest, I picked anger because I didn't think the stupid stuff was going to work anyway. You know, like this is weird, yeah. weird stuff people do. And she's waving her hand in front of me. And I of course I understand the science behind it now and the bilateral stimulation on that. But, but like, uh, I'm just going to use this because it's not going to work. You know, I'm not going to tell her about all the crazy stuff that I've been in. Then 30 minutes later, I'm like, eh, whatever. Yeah. Stupid state police car. Beautiful. Yeah. It's beautiful. And, and that's where I want to wrap this up at. I think we've taken more than enough of your time. Josh uh, said, I can always talk trauma. Oh, I know. Yeah. I, and you and I, I think could go all night long. I think Josh could too, but. Oh, I don't talk enough to begin with. Well, that's what I was going to say. You dropped more than four words and they weren't the four words you said. Yeah, they weren't the four words, words. <laughs> you know, uh, but that was a beautiful convert. Like, oh, good, yeah, good. it's powerful. It's informative. And even for people like I think ourselves that are exposed to the mental health aspect, you sometimes to just get 
a different view mm-hmm. from someone is so helpful and understand because I think you can always understand trauma deeper and deeper. Sure. Yeah. What mm-hmm. my favorite one of the favorite things I get to do, like I said, I, I do a lot of speaking and, and, and traveling, and one of one of the most weird but coolest things I get, somebody will come up and they're like, "Man." It's like you were talking about directly to me. Yeah. It's like you knew I was in the audience today and we've never yeah. met. And yeah. I was like, dude, I'm talking about me. Yeah. Like, that's how I know this stuff is a brain problem. That's how I know this stuff is real. It's because every time I say it, it's not some weird magical thing we're making up along the way. It's everybody hurt and goes, oh, wait, that makes sense, actually. Got it. Yeah. Well, I mean, just even listening to you in Indiana, for example. Mm. Like, I, I think the gentleman that I was with was, I mean, he had, he had to step outside for a little bit, you know, because oh, yeah. he saw himself in what you were speaking about and what you were talking about. And that's, that's a powerful, powerful yeah. thing. It never gets old. You know? I mean, it's, I, I don't, I, I do this so much that it's, this is my daily function. You know, it's yeah. kind of like being the police. Like this mm-hmm. is, again, that, that like, oh, you didn't know, you listeners didn't know this stuff yet. Yeah. What are you doing? But it turns out. We don't know this stuff. Yeah. And uh, so once again, you know, for those listening, check out Trevor Wilkins, the Angry Viking. Uh, Angry Viking Therapist, yeah. Yep. Uh, Any shout-outs, websites, anything like that? I'm pretty easy to find. Uh, Instagram, YouTube, um, it's all the Angry Viking Therapist. Those are probably the most prevalent of where you can get information about me. Uh, YouTube, if you like what I said, it's me yelling at the camera, all this stuff. So people tend to like that. Uh, The Instagram is the Angry Viking Therapist, just one word. I'm pretty easy to find. Uh, it is uh, a website, theangryvikingtherapist.com, if you want to get a little more information about, you know, how to maybe connect with me online. But that's pretty, uh, pretty stagnant of information. So, yeah. so of course, uh, being the product. But uh, yeah, the Angry Viking Therapist. That and and I was going to tell you when we first started that came from academia because yeah. uh, you Don't know the, that, they yeah. they think that I look and act angry all the time. I know it doesn't translate uh, on. Uh, on radio so much but you know, i'm covered in viking tattoos oh absolutely so, you know, I, so i thought we were kin oh yeah I, you, you know yeah. when we first started so yeah i'm pretty easy you know. to find uh the instagram gets the most information but there's facebook yeah. and stuff out there for people that, that aren't comfortable with instagram and it's all about the same name it's cool perfect i appreciate it all right well hey guys let's uh it's already 9 15 let's uh let's call it a night yeah Thank you for listening to this segment of No One Fights Alone. No One Fights Alone is sponsored by Chateau Recovery is a 16-bed treatment facility nestled in the foothills of the Wasatch Mountains in Midway, Utah. Chateau's First Responder Resiliency Program is designed to treat the unique challenges and issues that first responders encounter in the course of their careers. Chateau's comprehensive and highly individualized approach to treatment addresses more than just the presenting issues. It addresses the why. Each of their seasoned, trauma-trained, and culturally competent therapists utilize evidence-based, specialized therapies to treat trauma at its core and enable clients to begin the healing process while developing a resilient and healthy relationship with stress. Chateau Recovery is trusted by departments and agencies from around the country to treat responders and veterans. In fact, it is one of only a handful of facilities nationwide that is vetted and approved to treat members of the Fraternal Order of Police. For more information, or to speak to a representative, 
go to chateaurecovery.com or call 888-507-5031. No One Fights Alone is also sponsored by First Responder Trauma Counselors. First Responder Trauma Counselors are subject matter experts in proactive behavioral health care for frontline workers through their National Peer Support Academy. This 40-hour all-badges, all-uniforms, and all-scrubs educational experience helps to create caring, honest, and empathetic peer support relationships with your fellow frontline workers. The FRTC National Peer Support Academy is taught by actual first responders who have gone back to school to become culturally competent, licensed behavioral health clinicians that teach from lived experiences, not just theories from books. This fast-paced immersive educational academy will not just change your life, it will help you save the lives of others. For additional details, visit 991overwatch.org or call 970-222-419-3. This could be the most life-changing academy you'll ever attend.